works or by our goodness, we're saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. That's grace. It's not fair, but we really don't want fair and we don't want justice when we're standing before God in the great judgment. We want grace. One of the messages we talked about was the tension that arose inside of God because of two aspects of his nature. And we used a clothespin to illustrate this. And on one side, we'd written holiness, and on the other side, we'd written love. Because God is love, and God is also holy. And when confronted with sin, the holiness of God becomes wrath, and it must punish sin. And when confronted with uh, sin, love, the loving side of God, becomes grace and wants to forgive sin. So this was the tension, just like if you squeeze on the end of the clothespin, creates tension on that spring was created by our sin. And then we said, what was the resolution of this tension within the very nature of God? And we pulled that clothespin into the shape of a cross. And here's where this was resolved. On the cross, Jesus took the holy wrath and punishment of God that we deserved upon himself. And that frees God to exercise his loving grace and to forgive us with the gift of salvation. So it doesn't depend upon our goodness or on our work. It depends on the promise of God to save us through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. But all of this emphasis on grace kind of begs the question, where do works fit into it then? I mean, where, what about being good? Like all those people who say, that's not fair. I mean, we were good and we did this, that. Does goodness matter? Why should we be good? And, and that's, those are good questions. I'm, actually, I'm glad you asked those questions. And we're going to address those in the message today. In the whole system of grace, where do good works and obedience and law fit in to the process? I've got four questions on the back of your bulletin. We're going to address these four questions this morning. And the first one here is, are we saved from works? Are we saved from good works? In Romans 6, 1, Paul writes, and he's been writing about grace. And so in this verse, he kind of anticipates this very question. Someone asking, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Another verse, just a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, You are not under law, but under grace. So what does this mean when, when Paul says, as Christians, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace? And we understand we're not under the old Mosaic law, the, the ceremonial law where you had to sacrifice animals, you had a Levitical priesthood, and you had certain feast days to observe in the Jewish calendar, and you worship by going to the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, all that was temporary, but what about God's moral law? Are we still obligated to obey God's law now that we're under grace? Is this what Paul means when he says you're not under law, you're not obligated to be good anymore? We're not obligated to obey God's commands. They just don't apply because we are under grace. I was thinking about this, and I remembered a Far Side cartoon. I used to get these calendars and read the Far Side cartoons. The two guys are fishing on a lake, and out in the distance, they see the mushroom clouds that indicate a nuclear strike or a nuclear accident. And the one fisherman says to his buddy, I don't know if you can read this, but he says, I'll tell you what this means, Norm. No size restrictions and forget the limit. The rules go out the window, Norm. And uh, some people might conclude that. After emphasizing grace so much, does that mean the rules go out the window? Does that mean the commandments of God are no longer in effect and we just don't have to obey anymore? Carl Ketcherside, in his book on grace, really came to that conclusion. He, rise, he raises this very point. He writes, under the new covenant, we're new covenant, New Testament people, 
God did not hand us another law, a written code to govern us. Such a code belonged to the days of childish immaturity. Our hope lies in conformity to Christ, not conformity to a code. Everyone must make a choice between love of law and the law of love. And this choice will determine whether he will exist in bondage or live in liberty. If one is obligated by his relationship to Jesus to keep his commandments, he still must be under a code of laws. But the church is composed of those who are not under law, but under grace. Well, what's Carl Ketcherside saying right there? We're not under law anymore. The obligation to obey God is gone because we're under grace. Well, what does Paul mean here? Let's, let's just pause and make a very important clarification about these two things that Paul is saying, this contrast. You are not under law, but under grace. If I understand what the Bible teaches, it does not mean, it does not do away with our obligation to obey God. There are all kinds of commandments and rules and instructions, and yes, even laws in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that we are obligated to obey. When Paul says you're not under law, he is saying you are not under the law system as a way to be saved. You're under the grace system. So in one of the messages we had, one of the like, second or third one, we talked about the two gates as a means of entering into heaven. You had the law gate and you had the grace gate. And the law gate, people in that line are hoping they'll earn their way into heaven. They can do enough good deeds to qualify or to negate their sins. And while theoretically that is possible, Theoretically, it's possible to live a good enough life if we keep all of God's commandments all the time for our entire lives. Yes, a person could go to heaven that way. But while it's theoretically possible, we realize, and the Bible teaches this, and we know it from our own experience, nobody is in reality going to enter into eternal life by being good enough through the law gate. We abandon that. We come over here to the grace gate, wherein our salvation and our eternal life is entirely a gift from God. The word grace literally means gift. It is a gift that brings joy. So what Paul is saying here when he says, you're not under law, you're under grace, means you are not under the law system as a means of being saved. Legalism is not law keeping, it's law depending. It's depending upon the law for our salvation. We're depending upon the grace of God for our salvation. So this is something to keep in mind clarify we're talking about two different kinds of systems law keeping the word for law keeping in the new testament is holiness it's simply holiness the only way to be holy like god is holy as we're commanded to do is to follow his laws and his laws are simply an expression of his character and his attributes inscribed so yeah the obligation is still there number two are we still obligated to obey god's law yes the real question here is why why are we still obligated to obey god's law psalm 24, verse 1, the psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. The earth's foundation. Psalm 89, verse 11, saying the same thing, basic idea. The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. For you created it all. Why are we obligated to obey God? Basically foundationally we are all obligated to obey god because we are creatures and he's our creator 
When I say creature, I use that word creature not in the creepy sense of a creature feature, but simply in the sense that we are creatures, we are created beings, and God created us. And because God created us and the world and everything in the world, He has ownership. Ownership comes with creation. What you create, you own. And as our Creator, God has the inherent right to do what He wants with His creation and to lay down laws and rules and guidelines that His creatures are obligated to obey. Same with children. If you have children, if you brought children into the world, then who do those children belong to? Do they belong to the government? Do they belong to the village? Do they belong to the school? No, those are your children. That's my son. That's my daughter. And because, in a very real sense, you created them, there is an obligation there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. Why? Because they created you. Now, ultimately, God created everyone, but in a secondary sense, we understand parents have created their children. And obedience comes, is included in that idea of honor. In the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. So included in this idea of honor is obedience. And that obligation doesn't go away, even when we get older. Do you remember how Jesus chastised the hypocritical Pharisees because they were withholding financial support from their needy elderly parents? They, they held it from them. And Jesus called them out. He said, you are breaking the commandment that says honor your father and your mother by not supporting them as when they get elderly. So even though they were now adults, they were still obligated to honor their parents. We are always and always will be, always have been obligated to obey God because he's our creator and nothing can change that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote this book, Stand Your Ground, and as an author of a book, I have a legal relationship to this. It's called copyright, right? You've heard of copyright. And copyright means that I have the right to reproduce that book, to distribute that book, to sell that book, and allow others to do so. That's copyright. I have ownership. Why? Because I created those contents. I, in my book, I quote other people's books. And in order to put their quotes into my book, I had to contact those authors and obtain permission from them to use their copyrighted works and to uh, quote those in my book. Right. Why? Because they had copyright over what they had created. So you understand how that process works. Who has copyright over you? God does. God owns your copyright because he created you. And we're creating his image. Remember uh, when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, should we pay our taxes? And Jesus said, show me a coin. Whose image is on that? Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. The implication being the image of Caesar was on the coin, but we are made in the image of God. The image of God is on you you belong to God. So when you became a Christian, did you cease to be a creature? No. In fact, we now have a double obligation to obey God. We're obligated by virtue of creation, but we're new creations. We are born again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good work. All right, so we're, our obligation multiplies. It doesn't go away once we're saved. It multiplies once we're saved. 
Okay, so number one, we're not saved from works. We're actually saved for good works. Number two, are we still obligated to obey God's law? Yes. Number three, what is our new motivation for obedience under grace? Our new motivation. Romans 1, 4. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. What's the obedience of faith and how does that work? What's our motivation to obey now that we're Christians? Because there are all kinds of motivations. Some are appropriate and some are inappropriate. Some are egocentric as opposed to being theocentric, focused on God. For instance, somebody might obey out of fear. I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to obey God. I want to go to heaven, so I'm going to try to earn that. You know, those are motivations. That's the motivation behind most religions in the world. And we recognize that. Islam. In Islam, there's not a grace, there's, it's not a grace system. It's a work system where you pray certain prayers at certain times of the day. Uh, you take certain pilgrimages. You do certain deeds. And you may participate in jihad so you can die in that process. You're earning a spot in heaven. In Hinduism, You've got karma and reincarnation. This process of karma and reincarnation is an endeavor to become better and better and better until you can reach nirvana. Just about every major world religion has some kind of works uh, system of attaining heaven. Only in Christianity do you have a true grace system where that's not our motivation. The very nature of grace takes certain motivations off the table, like the fear motivation of going to hell. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're a Christian. You're not condemned. You're not judged. No hell for you. No condemnation for you. So if we don't have to work to avoid hell, that motivation is gone. What about same with the motivation to go to heaven? We're not earning our way to heaven. That's the gift. Eternal life is the gift of God, not the wages that we've earned. So that motivation is kind of off the table. So if we're not motivated out of a fear of going to hell or trying to earn our way to heaven, why in the world are we still trying to be good and obey God's commands? What's the motivation? And this high, ultimate motivation for Christians, this highest of motivations, is the motivation of love. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, we remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, love, which is really the highest motivation. Some of you will be able to relate to this. Back in the day when our kids were still pretty young, we were living in Virginia Katie's about eight, our daughter Katie. She was in a dance troupe, and twice a year they did a recital. So they would rent out this auditorium and this venue, and she'd do her dance recital. Well, we parents quickly learned that this, this venue had a limited seating. I guess all venues do. They had a limited seating. And so if we were going to get tickets for ourselves and our extended family and our friends, it was first come, first serve. You've got to get in line early. And by early... I mean, the night before the tickets went on sale at 9 o'clock in the morning, you had to be there. You had to get in line 5 o'clock at night. So 5 o'clock at night, I find myself on a lawn chair in this line in a parking lot of an auditorium with scores of other parents. I wasn't even first in line. I was fourth or fifth in line, and the line stretched on and on and on. 
spending the night in a parking lot in a lawn chair. And I'm a guy who loves my sleep. I'm an eight-hour guy. In bed by 9, up at 5. In bed at 10, still up at 5, 6. I'm up at 5, and if I don't get the eight hours, you know, it's a bad day. And here I am. I didn't get, I don't think I got any sleep that night. 2 o'clock in the morning, you're all wet with dew. You can't get comfortable on a lawn chair. People are talking and noisy. What would possibly motivate me to do that? Well, you know the answer to that. Tammy told me to get out there and get in that line. That's the answer to that because I'm married. No, but really, the, uh, it's love because we love, we love Katie, and so we're going to do that so we can support her. Now, none of you are judging me right now, at least you parents or grandparents. You're all nodding. Yes, we understand. We have done that. We have been there. I have some, somebody was telling me, tell me all the time, we're not going to be there next Sunday, Steve, because we've got to go here and support so-and-so, and they've got travel soccer, and they've got baseball, and they've got a concert, and they've got this, that, and the other thing. We're traveling with them. You have traveled. You have stayed up. You have spent money. You've done things you never dreamed that you would ever do. Nobody could make you do. Nobody could pay you to do. But you do them, and you would do even more because you love. You love those kids. You love those grandkids or you love your spouse, or whoever it is you're sacrificing for. We all understand the love motivation is the most powerful motivation. In Christianity, it moves us out of the realm of got to into the realm of get to. Do I got to do this? Do I got to go there? Do I got to give? Do I got to sacrifice? No, we don't got to do this, that, or the other. We get to do this. It's a whole different approach to motivations. Okay, so all of that being the case, we're saved by grace. It's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful to know that we're gonna, Jesus is going to stand beside us at the judgment and put his arm around us and say, you belong to me, and that's why we're going to heaven. It's not based on how good we've lived our lives. That's wonderful to know that. That being the case, and we've got the love motivation, my fourth and final question is this. Why is it still so hard to obey? Then why is it still so hard to obey? Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul writes, What I want to do... I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul wrote that. And the verses that follow amplify that question. Who among us this morning could not have written that verse? Man, I know the right thing to do, and I, I, I didn't do it. I know the wrong thing. That's what I wind up doing. Why is it still so hard? Is it hard or is it easy to get up early in the morning and read the Bible and have your prayer time? Is it hard or is it easy to give your money away? Is it hard or is it easy after a long day of week, uh, work of, week of work and maybe Sunday's your only day off to get up and go to church or having worked the night shift to get up and, and go to church? Is it hard or is it easy to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, to sacrifice for others? Is that hard or is it easy? Why is sin still so attractive to us? Why is temptation still so tempting? Why do we still have hang-ups and habits and maybe even addictions that we're struggling with. And especially in, in the previous messages, we've talked about how God in His grace regenerates our hearts and gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is an internal source of power that helps us want to do God's will and empower us, gives us the ability to do God's will. If all that's true, why is it still so hard? That's a great question, and I'm going to answer that or begin to answer that question in next week's sermon. 
I said we're going to ask four questions today, but we're only going to answer three. And this one is worthy of its own, the entire thing of its own sermon and maybe even a couple of messages. And I, and I think as we address this question and we begin to understand how to access the internal resource of the Holy Spirit that God has given us to want to obey God and then to obey God, it's going to be one of the most valuable and practical messages to come out of this grace series. But I want to conclude with this uh, real-life anecdote. used to read Reader's Digest and lifted this from Reader's Digest a few years ago. Clara Null, a young single mother from Oklahoma City, described what she called one of the worst days of her life. She said the washing machine broke down. The telephone kept ringing. My head ached. The mail carrier brought a bill I had no money to pay. Almost to the breaking point, I lifted my one-year-old into his high chair, leaned my head against the tray, and began to cry. Without a word, my son took his pacifier out of his mouth and stuck it into mine. <laughs> now, if you can relate to that story, if you've ever felt that way, and especially in living the Christian life, uh, we're going to get that spiritual pacifier next Sunday and talk about that, how God can help us a little bit. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we once again revisit this theme of grace, grateful love wells up in our hearts. We're so thankful to be able to let go of this treadmill of trying to earn and be good enough and cancel the sins that we've committed. We know that's not going to work. We know we're never going to get there. We are so grateful that Jesus was willing to come and die on the cross, take that holy wrath upon himself so that you could do what you wanted to do all along in your love, forgive our sins, and give us the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.